0: Today's episode of Crime Nerds covers the case of a man who just wanted to go buy a classic car, but then he is never seen again. I'm your host, Koi, and this is the story of Robert Weichel. Robert Weichel was born May 18, 1930 in Illinois. He grew up there, and while there isn't much information on his childhood, when he got older, he owned several restaurants there and in New Mexico. He also ventured out to work on the Alaska Pipeline in the early 1990s. He settled in Buren, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, a suburb of Seattle, Washington. While settling into the Seattle region, Robert had a great career as a sheet metal worker. In his spare time, he took advantage of all the outdoor activities surrounding the Seattle area. When Robert retired in the 90s, he started a side business to supplement his retirement funds. He would buy classic cars, restore them, and then sell them for a profit. His other passion, which seemed to be more of something he was interested in, and not as a business thing, was jewelry. I guess that's as good of a passion to have as any. Robert always wore a 1.25 carat diamond ring, which had a very unique European cut to it. From my own research in 2021, that diamond may cost around 8 dollars to $12,000, and he even wore this while he was working and restoring cars. Now this next part, I think everyone can relate to this in a way. You may not be involved in this group, but you've most likely seen this group. In just about every McDonald's or other breakfast places, I would even venture to say this might be a worldwide thing. There's a group of older, retired men that meet almost every single morning for coffee. At 66 years old, Robert was no different. He had a group of friends that he would meet with and socialize with over coffee at a McDonald's every single morning. In early 1996, the group of men were joined by a much younger man one morning. His name was Mike Wynn. Mike was really drawn to Robert and tried to talk to him as much as he could. At the time, Mike didn't have a job and he was supported by his girlfriend. Mike told Robert that he learned about a soldier near Tacoma, Washington, who had a 1950s Ford Thunderbird for sale. This opportunity was perfect for Robert because that was the car that he had been looking for to remodel. Robert gave Mike $1,000 in cash to go to the man and put a deposit down for the car, and then he would follow up with the rest of the payment at a later time. Robert then withdrew $5,200 from his bank in cash for the rest of the car. Robert went to Mike and tried to arrange going to get the car, but Mike kept putting things off and having excuses as to why he couldn't get the car just yet. Understandably, Robert was becoming pretty frustrated with Mike. Robert had already told his friends how excited he was about going to get this car, how it was the exact car that he wanted so badly. But as his frustration grew with Mike, at a poker game with some of his friends, Robert told them that he was either going to get his money back from Mike or they were going to go get that car. On February 21st, 1996, Robert told his friends that he and Mike finally made arrangements to go get the car the next morning. When Robert told his friends about him and Mike going to get the car, that was the last time that someone who knew him personally had seen or heard from Robert. As days went by, it wasn't out of the ordinary for Robert to not be around. Sometimes when he would go get a car, it would take him a few days before he would show back up. Robert's neighbor John, who was part of the poker game, was a little shocked that Robert hadn't come by his house to show off this new Ford Thunderbird that he waited so long to get. When Robert didn't show up for the next poker game, John became even more concerned. He also thought it was odd that Robert's Mercedes had not been in the driveway since February 21st. He contacted police, but was told that Robert being an adult and it wasn't uncommon for his trips to take several days that they weren't going to do a missing persons report. While John had his concerns, Back in Illinois, Robert's family was also becoming concerned. They kept trying to call Robert. He never answered his phone, and each time they left a message, but he never returned their calls, which he would normally return fairly quickly. John quickly became an armchair detective here, and kept an eye on Robert's house. He noticed that mail kept piling up, and over the weeks, he kept looking through it to see if there would be anything that would explain where Robert was or why he hadn't returned home. Then on March 13th, 1996, John found a notice to Robert that was informing him that his Mercedes had been towed from a nearby park and ride lot. This really disturbed John. And it was really the evidence that showed something was wrong here. He knew that Robert normally took public transportation whenever he went to go get a new car. That way he could drive the new car home In the park and ride lot where Robert's car was towed from, well, that was where he would normally catch the public transportation. But it was only a few blocks from Robert's house. And when he would go there to get the public transportation, he would normally walk there. And if this was one of the few times where he did drive and leave a car there, it was always a different car. And he would never, ever leave his Mercedes in the parking lot. John also noticed the date on the impound sheet, and it was just a few days earlier, but by that time, Robert had been missing for three weeks. John contacted the police again with this new information, with the new developments, and they filed a missing persons report for Robert Weichel. A detective from the King County Sheriff's Office responded to Robert's house. The detective entered the house and began looking around for anything that might help show what happened to Robert. In the kitchen... There were dishes in the sink, food was left rotting on the countertop, coffee was still in the coffee pot, and there was an unfinished drink on the counter. In Robert's bedroom, all of his clothes were accounted for in his closet, and all of his suitcases were still in the house. With all of this, the detective concluded that when Robert left three weeks prior, he most likely did not expect to be gone for an extended amount of time. Investigators went through Robert's car looking for any clues. They did find Robert's wallet, and it was completely empty. John reached out to Robert's daughter, Rebecca, to let her know that Robert was missing and that police were investigating his disappearance. Rebecca went to Seattle to help with the search. She spoke to the media about her father, and the local news station shared the story. Investigators were hoping that they may get a tip from someone on a robbery that went wrong or some sort of accident that would lead to Robert's disappearance. But no tips came in. In the years leading up to his retirement, Robert talked about traveling to Argentina. It was a country that he really liked. He had worked there for a brief time and enjoyed the culture there. He still had several friends that were there and he often talked about wanting to go back. As detectives looked into this theory, they found his passport was still in the house and they weren't able to locate any sort of travel plans where Robert's name associated with them. There had also been no activity on his bank account since he withdrew the $5,200 for the car. Then things became interesting. John remembered that Robert was talking at the poker game about being upset with someone over a car deal. The only thing was John didn't remember Robert ever telling him the person's name. Rebecca then went to the McDonald's one morning to meet with a group of men that her father normally had breakfast with. They remembered the younger guy's name was Mike, but they couldn't remember his last name. There was also a manager at the McDonald's that was preparing to leave the store for another job. Before Robert disappeared, the group of men got the manager a going away card and they all signed it. The day that they signed it, Mike was there. They found the card and saw he signed it with his first and last name of Mike Wynn. But the group had another interesting fact. Mike had almost become a regular at their breakfast, but he hadn't shown up since Robert went missing. How would you like to save a couple of hours each week? Grocery shopping takes time, and time is something that we are always trying to get more of. That's where Instacart comes in. With Instacart, you can spend that extra time catching up on other things like the gym, reading a book, or listening to a podcast while you're reading a book at the gym. Instacart also uses its technology to highlight deals to help save you money. The shoppers pick the freshest produce, and they even keep your eggs safe. Instacart delivers to your door in as fast as one hour. If you use the link in the show notes, it helps support this show and it lets Instacart know that I sent you. And you will get a free delivery on your first order of over $35. And now, back to the show. Naturally, Mike became the focus of the investigation. Then, he surprised everyone. Before anyone could find Mike, He reached out and called Rebecca at her hotel. He told her that he got her number from Robert's landlord. He claimed that he recently returned after being out of town on a trip and that he just learned about Robert's disappearance. He told her that the last he knew of, Robert had gone on an extended trip to a car auction in California. This was information that investigators found extremely odd because none of Robert's friends at McDonald's or the poker games knew about this trip, but somehow Mike did. Detectives then located Mike and interviewed him themselves. He said that he hadn't seen Robert since February 20th when they had breakfast at McDonald's. When they asked him about the Ford Thunderbird, Mike seemed confused and told them that there was never a car that he was arranging for Robert to buy. The detectives then gave him a few facts that they knew. Robert gave him money for a down payment. And then he withdrew more money from his bank to pay for the car. They also informed him that they talked to the guys at McDonald's and those guys witnessed him talking to Robert about the Ford Thunderbird. And then it was almost a miracle happened right in front of them because now all of a sudden Mike remembered the conversation about the car and the deal they worked out. But They said that the deal just fell through. As investigators began looking more into Mike, he became more and more interesting. They learned that Mike wasn't actually his real name. It was Myron, and that he used several aliases in the past. Myron had quite the criminal history also, involving drug trafficking and several violent crimes against women. When investigators interviewed his girlfriend, she told them that he claimed he had been going to work every day when he was really going to McDonald's, but she knew that he really didn't have a job. Detectives asked Myron if he would come and do a polygraph, and he said that he would. But at the scheduled time, he didn't show up. The polygraph was then rescheduled. The next time for the polygraph, Myron coincidentally had a dentist appointment that he forgot about. He even gave investigators the name of the dentist. So investigators went to watch the dental office, and there were no signs of Myron showing up. They then talked to the dentist who coincidentally did not even have a patient under any of myron's aliases then came the review of robert's phone records there was one particular phone call that stood out that was made on february 20th the day before he went missing robert made two calls to an rv park called mother nature's acres which is a 130 acre park just south of tacoma washington where they were going to go get the car from. At first glance, it's easy to think maybe he just wanted to get away. What better way to disappear from everyone than to go to a campground in the middle of a 130 acre forest? But it wasn't just any campground. It was owned by Myron's family. Detectives went to the RV park and spoke to Robin, Myron's sister. She was also able to tell them that on February 23rd, Myron came to the park with a man who did match Robert's description. They drove there together in a black Mercedes. Myron said that they were killing time while they were waiting on a car to be available for them to go purchase. Robin remembered that the guy Myron was with seemed to be growing very impatient with Myron. Other employees at the RV park gave investigators a similar story of Myron with a man who matched Robert's description. If this was, in fact, Robert at the RV park with Myron, it would be the last time that he was ever seen. Investigators believed that they now had enough proof to show that Myron had lied to them. He said that the deal for the car fell through and that they were never seriously trying to get the car, but now Myron is with Robert an hour from where Robert lived, just outside of Tacoma, the town where the car is supposed to be. So detectives were eager to talk to Myron again. On April 11th, he was arrested on a warrant for a traffic violation, and this seemed like the perfect time to talk to him. But now all of a sudden, he refused to speak with detectives. Myron was soon released from jail on the traffic warrant. While everything looked suspicious and pointed towards Myron, it still wasn't enough to charge him with anything. And then Myron disappeared from the Seattle area. As time passed, detectives followed up on every lead they could. But eventually, the leads began to run out. Three years went by, while detectives continued to stay in touch with Robert's family and look into things, there just wasn't a lot of positive breaks happening for this case. But that would all change in 1999. John Holland was the detective that took over Robert's case. John began hanging up flyers around the area, making it clear that it was believed that Robert was met with foul play and that he didn't just run away to start a new life. John and another detective, Susan Peters, went to talk to Robin again. This was where the first big break in three years came from. Robin told them that she ran into Myron at a family reunion in Texas and that he had been living there. This was the first time that investigators knew where Myron was since he disappeared after being released from jail. But that wasn't all. She noticed one thing that really stood out. Myron was showing off a very large diamond that was placed in a pendant. This seemed to be odd to her because Myron barely ever kept a job and there was no legitimate way that he would be able to afford a diamond like that. The question now was, Could this be Robert's diamond that he always wore on his ring? The detectives tracked down the woman that Myron was dating at the time of Robert's disappearance in 1996. They were no longer in a relationship and she told them that in late February of 1996 Myron gave her a diamond pendant as a birthday gift. This would have been just a few days after Robert went missing. Remember, the ex-girlfriend was already suspicious of Myron around that time, he was lying about going to work every day, so she knew he couldn't afford any sort of gift like this. Because he couldn't afford something like that, she believed that the diamond was fake, but Myron told her that he found it at the Buren Park and Ride. I'm sure it's no coincidence that this is the same park and ride lot that Robert's car was found in. But when the relationship ended, Myron took the diamond back from her. Robin then learned that Myron may have sold the diamond to an aunt of theirs. Robin helped the detectives get in touch with the aunt. The aunt told them that Myron tried to sell her the diamond for $1,500. He claimed that he bought it for more money than that from a co-worker. Now, I'm not sure what job he had where he even had a co-worker, but I think it's safe to assume that that was a lie. The aunt took the diamond to get it appraised and it was valued around $5,000. So she made a deal to pay $2,000 for it and also give Myron a place to live at the time. After some negotiations, investigators convinced the aunt to turn the diamond over to them for further examinations. During the exam by a gemologist, it was determined that the diamond was a unique European cut, much like Robert's and it had scrapes on it, consistent with being worn while someone was doing metal work. Detectives then reached Myron on the phone in Texas. They confronted him about having witnesses who saw him and Robert at the RV park. Myron changed his story again and said that they did go there, waiting on the seller of the car to call them back. He said that they drove back to Buren but couldn't remember where Robert dropped him off at. Myron was asked if he would be on the security camera at the parking ride. Then all of a sudden, Myron remembered getting dropped off there. The detectives then took a trip to Texas to speak with Myron face to face. This time, they told Myron that they had the diamond. He claimed again that he found it in the parking ride. The same one where Robert's car was found, they asked if there was any reason why Robert's DNA would be on the diamond that he supposedly found. He said that after he found it, he did show it to Robert. Investigators felt that they had enough evidence at this point to charge Myron murder, but the prosecutors felt a little different. They weren't confident that they could convict Myron without finding Robert's body. So Myron wasn't arrested at that time, and the main focus of the investigation turned to looking for Robert's body. In 2003, seven years after Robert went missing, his family had him declared legally dead. Years began to go by again. The search for the body kept coming up empty. The detectives kept going back to Texas to interview Myron. By this time, I'm sure that each time they came and left without him being charged, he probably grew more and more confident. But what was really happening was that he was giving more and more evidence to this case. Each time they spoke to him, they caught him in a different lie or changing the story around. Each inconsistent statement was documented. In 2009, things changed. A friend of Myron's approached the detectives. He said that after one visit, Myron told him, nothing's gonna happen. They're not even looking in the right ballpark for the body. This was the evidence in the statement that the detectives and prosecutors felt confident with that showed that Myron not only knew Robert was dead, but that he knew where the body was. And with this new development, in 2009, a warrant for first degree murder was issued. Myron was arrested in Texas and extradited back to Washington. The trial started in mid-2010. Prosecutors showed that Myron had a history of defrauding people in the exact same way that he did Robert. They presented other cases where Myron found something that the victims really wanted and he claimed that he could help them purchase it. He then took a portion of their money to help with the purchase but never finished the deal. His various aliases also helped support this theory. The main theory was that Myron overheard Robert talking about cars and saw him showing cash at a McDonald's one morning. Maybe even the diamond ring. And that's how he decided on Robert as the next target. But this time things were different than all the other scams because Robert caught on to Myron's game so it was theorized that Myron then led Robert to an isolated location with the pretext of meeting the seller for the car. Once they were in the location Myron killed Robert and disposed of the body. All of that seemed very likely, but this trial was declared a mistrial. One of the biggest reasons was because the jury didn't believe that it was thoroughly investigated on the possibility that Robert suddenly decided to move to Argentina. I guess even without taking his passport, clothes, money, and wallet, that was still something the jury could see happening. In 2011, a new trial began. This time, prosecutors presented the same circumstances with just a little more investigation into the Argentina theory, and Myron was found guilty and ultimately sentenced to 20 years in prison. As sentencing, Myron continued to claim his innocence. Myron has attempted to appeal his conviction. One of the reasons, he claimed, was that a juror was in the same elevator as the prosecutors and the defense attorneys. At which time the juror then proceeded to look at the prosecutor's evidence. Which I don't want to say that that's another lie that Myron told, but it would take some serious confidence to be a juror in an elevator with all the lawyers involved in the case, and you want to try and do some sort of Nicolas Cage type of stealing the Declaration of Independence mission to see just some of the evidence in a very short elevator ride. Needless to say, the conviction was upheld. Myron is currently serving his time in a prison in Washington state. And this is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode of Crime Nerds. If you can, please give a rating or a review for the show. You can follow on Instagram or Facebook at Crime Nerds Podcast. I hope you all have a great day, and thank you for listening.